The breaking of the taboo on socialism and socialist ideas in the United States has been a fascinating thing to observe from, from the outside. How has this happened and, and how did the public in Virginia respond to your ideas and also your self-identification as a socialist? Yeah, so talking about how how this all happened, I think uh, one thing to understand is that, um, you know, on both sides of the aisle, uh, the center of American politics is not holding anymore, uh, especially in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. You know, over on the right, um, you've had people who their life is getting worse and worse, and so they're looking for an answer. And on the right, that answer, you know, first came in the form of the Tea Party movement, um, and now obviously the, the answer from the right is in the form of Donald Trump, you know, blaming others and scapegoating vulnerable populations. Um, and on the left, uh, you've seen uh, the the rise of a new kind of answer with the Occupy Wall Street movement, with the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. Uh, so you've got at the same time you've got uh, the left and and the the far right rising up to to fill the gap that's being left by um, the the mainstream of the two major political parties, because the answers that the mainstream of the two major political parties. Uh, the answer they're giving us doesn't really work for people's lived experiences anymore. Um, you know, our unemployment numbers are down, but that's mostly because uh, of people who have dropped out of the workforce entirely and stopped looking for work. Uh, it's because of people who used to have one job that supported the entire family. and Now they have three or four between the couple. So, uh, you know, one party saying that everything is fine, the other party saying, oh, we just need to put things back to the, the way things were before 2008. Those are the conditions that gave us 2008 in the first place. So that's why you have uh, the, the rise of both of these movements at the same time. Um, now, as far as how the people in my district responded to my ideas, um, we really made a concerted effort to, uh, to craft a message that would uh, resonate with people who have grown cynical with the political process. And we worked really hard to deliver that message straight to people's doors. So I didn't go out there and say, you know, a vote for Lee Carter is a vote for socialism. Um, I didn't hide it either. Uh, you know, if, if people asked whether or not I was a socialist, I would say, yes, I am. Here's what that means. You know, I believe in, uh, employee-owned and democratically operated business. Uh, yeah, I believe that it's better than investor-owned business because, you know, the employees are never going to vote to ship their own jobs overseas. They're never going to work themselves at poverty wages so that executives can make $16 million, things like that. Um, but we really focused on the material conditions of people's lives. Uh, we focused on making sure that uh, Virginia is the kind of place where everybody can live and work and not have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table, not have to worry about how they're going to make the rent, not have to worry about whether they're one injury or illness away from bankruptcy. Uh, and I tied the influence of big corporate money into each of those. You know, I said, um, there are 750,000 Virginians with no health insurance because the health insurance companies give X amount of dollars to politicians like my opponent. Uh, you know, there are people who are losing their homes for natural gas pipelines because the natural gas companies give X number of dollars to politicians like that. And on issue after issue after issue, 
uh, I made the case that getting this big corporate money out of politics would make people's lives better. In some ways, um, one of the kind of tragedies of American politics is that in the post-war period, especially due to um, you know Cold War hysteria around the idea of socialism and, and organized labor, there was never really the rise of an American Labor Party strongly affiliated with the labor movement, a party similar to the British Labor Party or Australian or New Zealand Labor Party or the old Italian Socialist Party, French Socialist Party, that arose from the trade union movement. Never really happened. I know there was an American Labor Party that had the affiliation of maybe 10, 15% at its peak of the union movement. For the most part, the labor movement was sort of araldited to the Democrats. So you didn't have the emergence of a social democratic movement or a, or a democratic socialist party. What is happening in terms of building bridges between the democratic socialists of America and the the organized labor movement in the United States? The democratic socialists of America uh, are very, very heavily invested in making sure that um, they have a good relationship with organized labor in the U.S. Uh, you know, about 9% of American workers are in a union. The vast majority of those are affiliated with KFL-CIO. Uh, and in city after city throughout the U.S., you have chapters of DSA that are, you know, going out on picket lines and solidarity actions with, with striking workers. Um, you have, I mean, where I am in Northern Virginia, uh, the Northern Virginia branch of DSA actually meets in the Northern Virginia AFL-CIO Hall. Uh, so, um, you know, it's it's on a local-by-local local basis what kind of relationship uh, they have, but it, it's a very big priority because there's this recognition that um, when labor was strongest, when we made the most gains for working people, was, you know, the late 1930s, early to mid-1940s, uh, during the presidency of... Franklin Roosevelt. And that's because there were, you know, 30% of American workers were in a union. Um, and the unions were, were basically in control of the Democratic Party uh, by way of Franklin Roosevelt, who unabashedly worked to make life better for working people. You know, he was sort of a social democracy kind of president. Um, but there was also uh, a large socialist party there was even, I mean, there was a large communist party in the United States. There were a million people who would call themselves communists. I'm certainly not one. Um, but, but at that time, you had this coalition of, um, of political parties and, and organized labor movements, social movements on the left that were strong enough. They said, you know, we will shut down production entirely unless things get better for working people. And as a result, we got Social Security, which is pensions for people over 65, publicly funded. We got the unemployment insurance system. We got uh, the New Deal, you know, the Works, uh, the Works Progress Authority, which uh, directly employed 15 million people in construction projects. Uh, so we got massive improvements in the lives of working people uh, precisely when lives were the worst for working people because, um, you know, we got those gains because, the left was able to stand with labor unions and apply economic pressure on the ruling class of American life and demand an improvement. Now, I've just um, quite a while ago, I read about the very high rate of women and babies in the United States who die during childbirth. And it's because so many women are, 
or families opt to have the children at home because the expenses involved in going to hospital are extraordinary. I know a, a, a cousin of mine had a child in South Carolina. Two-day hos- hospital stay was $6,000. And and just recently there's been another report on this, on this this astronomically high rate of infant mortality and, and women dying in childbirth, which is out of step with the rest of the industrialised world. What it points to straight away is the totally inequitable healthcare system. So it's the tip of the iceberg. So uh, there's been a lot of talk about single payer. What are the other, along with single payer healthcare and um, what are the other key policies that yourself uh, and and the socialist movement, democratic socialist movement in America is pursuing at state and federal level? Yeah, when it comes to healthcare, single payer healthcare is uh, the the ultimate goal of, of those of us that are on the left. Uh, because we recognize that, you know, for-profit companies only really work uh, in a market where demand is what we call elastic, right? So um, if times are good, demand goes up. If times are bad, demand goes down. And healthcare is not one of them. Uh, the demand for healthcare stays the same regardless of whether uh, people are doing well economically or not, because at some point, everyone's going to need to see a doctor. And when you need to see a doctor, that's it. You need, you know, you can't haggle over the price. You need to see a doctor. Uh, so, so we're fighting for single payer healthcare uh, because we're seeing the failures in the profit-driven American healthcare system. We're seeing, um, you know, in the case of Virginia, we have a population of eight and a half million people. We have seven hundred and fifty thousand people with no health insurance whatsoever. That's eight percent of our population. Uh, we have a million or two million more that have health insurance and can't afford their deductible, so they might as well just not have it at all. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are some policy steps along the road before we get there. You know, on the federal level, there's a big push to go straight to Medicare for all. Um, but on the state level, there's 31 states that have not expanded uh, Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So here in Virginia, we have an opportunity to get 400,000 people health insurance coverage very quickly uh, just by expanding Medicaid in compliance with current federal law. Uh, And then, you know, we we can continue the fight for single payer to make sure that we cover those 350,000 more and we make sure that we take care of those million or two million people that can't afford their deductibles. Um, That's really the the biggest single policy priority of democratic socialists of America right now. Um, but there are other things that we're fighting for. We're fighting for uh, tuition-free college and university. Uh, we're fighting uh, to, you know, end the cash bail system because our, our current justice system in America uh, is a system where you get all the justice you can afford. Um, so we're just, we're fighting uh, for a long list of policy objectives that uh, we'll make life better for working people. Uh, and that's, you know, these are things that, that transcend racial and ethnic lines um, that are just going to make things better for the people that are most vulnerable in American society, uh, regardless of those people's racial and ethnic background. Lee, I was fascinated to read that it was a personal workplace injury in 2015 and your subsequent struggles with the Virginia Workers' Compensation Commission, which first led you down the, the path to socialist politics. I wonder if perhaps your experience echoes that of many other Americans who've suffered various forms of injustice and exploitation in their own lives and the lives of their families and simply no longer believe the lies, the distortions, the propaganda of, for instance, the mainstream media. 
in terms of what kind of society America truly is or has has become. And I note that there was uh, some pretty scurrilous, really hysterical propaganda put out by your Republican opponents equating you with Marx and Lenin and Stalin and so on. And it seems that, well, clearly, given you won the election, that that propaganda simply didn't wash with your electorate. So is it that large numbers of people don't believe those uh, scare tactics about socialism that have been so long perpetuated, for instance, by the American media? Yeah, you know, um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, my workplace injury that, that actually got me into politics. There's, there, there's a, a very famous phrase that just about everyone in the building trades in the United States has heard at some point, which is, if you fall off a ladder, you're fired before you hit the ground. Uh, there's this mindset among uh, the, the, the corporate class in America that working people are largely expendable. And, you know, no matter how much they try to act like your friend when things are good, a lot of people, as soon as they're vulnerable for even a second, you know, whether that be because of a workplace injury, whether it be something that's happening in their personal lives, they, they realize instantly that they are a line item. They're an expenditure to the company. They're not actually treated like human beings with inherent dignity and value. Uh, And, you know, that's when you go out there and you talk about that, that's something that neither of the the major political parties here in America really talks about. Um, So when you when you talk to people about that, it resonates with them because it's it's real. It's their it's their actual life. When you say, um, you know, I'm going to fight to make sure that your boss can't fire you for getting hurt on the job. That's, it's impactful in a way that a lot of other things really aren't because it touches their day-to-day life. It, It connects with the part of their brain that realizes that, you know, we're the ones putting our lives on the line to make the companies we work for successful. And, we're really not treated like, uh, like people <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and so when you talk about these things, it, it really, it, it connects with people in a way that goes past the labels, right? So um, with the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign in 2016, the 13 million people that voted for Bernie, the overwhelming majority of them did not vote for him because he's a socialist, right? They voted for him because, he has the track record of integrity that shows that he's actually going to fight the fight. And that, that fight is to make your life better. And so when you have that combination of personal integrity and the stated value of making life better for working people, people go beyond labels. So that's why I wasn't really worried about the label, you know, whether people call me a socialist or not. I was just out there. I was I was walking the walk, you know, not taking a single dime from for-profit corporations or industry interest groups. I was telling my story. I was telling people what I'm going to fight for. And at the end of the day, that worked, you know, despite the fact that my opponent sent this mailer that you mentioned to 11,000 homes with pictures of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and Lee Carter. Uh, and... You know, it, it was this cartoonish sort of 1970s, 1980s, um, you know, everything that, that makes life better for working people is automatically, you know, the big, scary, evil commies from overseas. Uh, and it didn't work because people 
looked at what I was saying. They looked at where my money came from. They, you know, heard my story and they said, you know what? This is someone who, despite the labels, he's going to fight to make my life better. Now, I'm acutely aware that the the African-American communities and Latino communities in the United States are not, you know, a homogenous block. But it is also true that that one of the things that that prevented Bernie Sanders from being the Democratic candidate in uh, the presidential election was the entrenched Clinton machine or the entrenched mainstream Democrats' presence politically in African-American and and Latino communities that that got a lot of those votes for Clinton in the primaries. Stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, not simply re-fighting the 2016 primaries, what sort of traction is there? What kind of progress has been made in socialist organising in the Latino and African-American communities? Because obviously it's a massive part of the struggle. Often when people talk about the working class in America, mainstream pundits seem to exclude <laughs> exclude all the working class people who are, who are black or Latino. It's it's quite bizarre. But what what kind of traction is there for the socialists, organized socialists in those communities at the moment? Um, DSA, that's, that's certainly uh, an area where DSA is, is fighting really hard to make inroads. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of folks in marginalized communities that, that uh, are frankly just too busy uh, to think about political organization beyond just voting, right? So, uh, so that's an area where, where DSA is is fighting really hard to make inroads. Um, but when it comes down to election day, you know, if you put someone on the ballot who's uh, unabashedly fighting for the working class, who's going out there and saying, "I'm going to make life better for you. I'm not going to take money from the big corporate interests." Uh, that's something that that people respond to regardless of of racial or ethnic background. Uh, you know, it's important to realize that the working class in America is, um, is you know, it's it's not what the pundits say it is. You know, you mentioned that they they tend to say that it's largely white people. They also tend to say that it's largely poor people. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's only two ways to make a living. You either make a living by working for someone else, or you make a living based on the money that you already have. And if you make a living working for somebody else, whether you're a janitor or a programmer, you're in the working class. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of issues that uh, that you can talk about that, that will resonate with 98% of the population because 98% of the population have that, uh, that class in common where, you know, they make their living by working for someone else. So um, when you're, fighting for protection against retaliation for workers, when you're fighting for a better workers' compensation system, you know, when you're fighting for health care and tuition-free college and university um, and, and a living wage and freedom from discrimination, uh, you know, th- these are things that impact 98% of people. So, uh, so yeah, you know, this is this is all about making life better for, for everyone who works for a living, um, regardless of their racial or ethnic background, regardless of whether they're a low-wage worker uh, or, 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 you know, in the white-collar profession. Um, it's just about making life better for people. And, and there's a, a very, very big response to that when that's what you actually put on the ballot. Finally, Lee, tell us about how you view the bigger picture in Trump's America. I can tell you that 
we receive almost an unbearable avalanche of apocalyptic, or at least it's, it seems like apocalyptic news from America on virtually a daily basis. There is a sense, perhaps not entirely unjustified, that America is, is ending, really, spiralling down rapidly into outright social chaos. And yet someone like yourself has been elected as a socialist uh, to the House of Delegates in Virginia. There's a legacy of the Bernie Sanders campaign, as you've mentioned, the Black Lives Matter movement and so on. Is it really all, all doom and gloom for the future of America? Well, it is important to recognize that, uh, you know, I just I just got elected to a state legislature. There are, there are about 7,300 state legislative seats in America, uh, and there are two of us from DSA <laughs> that are elected to state legislative seats. Uh, so, you know, the, the left in America has been just absolutely decimated over the last 40 or 50 years, largely intentionally. Uh, by by corporate special interests, and, and we're rebuilding from scratch. But um, there's a tremendous amount of hope. There's a tremendous amount of optimism because we have so much room to grow, because we have, uh, you know, so many people that we can talk to that have grown cynical with the political process, um, where we can go to them and we can say, we're the ones that are going to make your lives better. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's also an opportunity right now with the Democratic Party in, in such chaos for us to step forward and say, we represent the direction that you guys need to go. You know, you need to reform yourselves in our image, uh, because right now the, the most unpopular thing in American politics is Donald Trump. The second most unpopular thing in American politics is the Democratic Party. So Donald Trump is not going to be around forever, uh, as much as it seems like it, you know, as much as every day feels like a year. Uh, he's not going to be around forever. And eventually that crutch that the Democratic Party has of just saying no to Donald Trump is going to go away. And if the Democratic Party has not fixed itself, if it's not reworked itself into a party uh, that doesn't try to straddle ideals, that doesn't try to compromise between working people and their bosses, if it doesn't reform itself into a party for working people like it was under FDR, then the Democrats nationwide are going to be in a whole lot of trouble as soon as Donald Trump. So the optimism that I have, the optimism that a lot of people on the left have, uh, comes from this sort of place of necessity. It's like, you know, we, we have to be optimistic because the alternative is just horrifying. 